When music sounds, gone is the earth I know, and all her lovely things even lovelier grow. Her flowers envision flame, her forest trees lift burdened branches stilled with ecstasies. When music sounds, out of the water rise, naiads whose beauty dims my waking eyes. Wrapped in strange dreams burns each enchanted face, with solemn echoing stirs their dwelling place. When music sounds, all that I was I am, heir to this hunt of brooding dust I came. While from time's woods break into distant song the swift-winged hours as I haste along, along, along. My beloved brother from another mother, welcome to yet another delightful HM101 recording sesh. Today, my friend, we have a daunting task before us. Are you ready to be daunted and yet still to persevere? I will do my best. All right. Here's the deal. Because of my scholarly tendencies towards completism, and also, perhaps, due to some deep-seated masochistic impulses that I should probably speak with someone about, today we are going to have an in-depth discussion about a subgenre of music I generally sort of hate. <gasps> Progressive metal. We gonna have us some fun or what? Oh boy. <laughs> I, I exaggerate a bit. More honestly, while I actually do dislike quite a lot of the classic progressive rock bands from the 1970s, I actually really do enjoy most of the metal bands we'll be discussing today. In fact, as we shall soon learn, my personal pick for single best heavy metal album of the entire 1980s is a frickin' progressive metal album. Does this fact overwhelm you with both surprise and perhaps a feverish curiosity? No. Is that because you know what the pick is? No, I mean... Either way, you'd just yeah. be kind of like... My general apathy <laughs> perseveres over all, Eric. Anyway, we'll get to all of that. First, in true academic fashion, I'd like us to define our terms. Hey, you asked I'd, me about I'd appreciate this. that, actually. Yeah, yeah, you had asked me about this before the episode. Now, I told you I was going to ask you. I'm going to ask you, even though I think we both know the answer here. We do. How would you define the term progressive rock? Uh, musically, I don't, I don't really understand how it functions. Okay. Okay, so so you wouldn't define the term. I wouldn't. I mean, I, I'm, I'm struggling to decide whether or not it's simply an era thing or if it is a, there is actually an aural aesthetic that is associated uh, with it. Okay, I have some thoughts on that matter. Well, regardless of definition, are you generally a fan of the music that people call progressive rock? I am generally unaware of how things are categorized when it comes to all kinds of rock because I don't pay attention to people talking about that kind of music. You're incredibly consistent, you know that? I, I am nothing, if not reliable. <laughs> Someday we'll find a subject about which you give a fuck. There are tons. Uh, they do not pertain to heavy metal in any way, shape, you're or form. You're saying there's limited crossover there is potential? There's limited crossover. <laughs> all, right. all right. Word. <laughs> well, John is always as chock full of pithy and wise insights. <laughs> Mother Research has thoughts on this matter. According to the good people at Oxford Languages, who, one imagines, are considerably brighter than John or I, progressive rock is, quote, a style of rock music popular especially in the 1970s and characterized by classical influences, the use of keyboard instruments, and lengthy compositions. Uh -huh. I'll buy that. What do you think? Okay. Yeah. The term was first used in the late 1960s and emerged out of the general psychedelic rock stew of that period, as represented by some bands who I, I do dislike rather intensely, like the Moody Blues and Procol Harum, as well as bands I deeply, deeply love, like Pink Floyd. John, you can see I'm already editorializing shamelessly today. Mm -hmm. I plan on doing a lot of that. Mm -hmm. I think this mm -hmm. is because objectivity is an illusion, right? Uh, yeah, that yeah. I'll agree with. Amen. The two formative masterpieces that truly established the possibilities of a more ambitious progressive take on the rock music of the day were The Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, released on May 16, 1966, and The Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which was released on May 26th of 1967. 
John, are you perhaps familiar with these somewhat significant popular music releases? This feels like a relevant moment in the history of the podcast because I think this is the first time that I actually know both of the albums that oh, you asked me. Angels singing! Now, Scandic neither of them are metal, we need to be clear. <laughs> You're not suggesting Absolutely that. Not. They clearly are not, but Absolutely I have not. actually listened to the entirety of both of those albums. Good. We could call these proto-progressive rock, so they are many stages removed from heavy metal. Sure. I mean, I like both albums, but the Pet Sounds I actually listened to rather recently, and I really enjoyed it. One of the best. I yeah. freaking love that album. These are, to quote the Bard, utter fucking masterpieces. Hell yeah. So I suppose it's reasonable to note that prog rock actually has a pretty damn respectable pedigree, despite some of my own qualms about the genre. Now here's the thing. We're here today not so I can offer grudging respect to those elements of prog rock that I don't deeply hate, but rather to talk about progressive heavy metal. Yeah, yeah! John, might I make an audacious supposition? Sure. All right. As we know, heavy metal officially began on February 13th of 1970. Does this sound like a familiar fact to you? Yep. All right, mm -hmm. all right. Mm -hmm. Black Sabbath and such. Mm -hmm. And yet, my audacious supposition is this. Progressive heavy metal actually kind of sort of began to be a thing as early as October 12th of 1969. This is four months prior to Sabbath's debut. Are you freaking out at my unmitigated audacity in making this supposition? I mean, your use of terms is now starting to mitigate the impact that language can have. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how you can have a progressive version of something before the fundamental version exists. Welcome to academia, my friend. Oh, God, I hate it here. <laughs> HM 101, blowing minds since 2021, baby. Mind-blowing or just <laughs> pissing people off? All right, can I explain? Uh, I mean, well, yes, uh, you must. I'm going to explain. I'm not going to just leave this hanging. You see, progressive rock stalwarts King Crimson released their debut album in the Court of the Crimson King on that date. And while most of that album most assuredly does not touch upon anything too closely resembling heavy metal, the opening track, 21st Century Schizoid Man very, very clearly did lay the groundwork for a melding of genuinely heavy rock and progressive elements. Oh, wow. So the basic gist is that there are a lot of heavy metal songs in the late 1960s. Black Sabbath's debut album would be the first album of heavy metal. King Crimson has an opening track that I think is heavy metal while simultaneously being very progressive, hence the birth of the progressive metal subgenre prior to the birth, officially, of heavy metal. All right, look, John, we're still in the fucking 1960s. Jesus Christ. Fuck balls. Would it be okay if we forget about this for a moment and just move the caravan I along? I think we better. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to the funky 1970s. It's the me decade. The decade of my birth. Prog rock is everywhere. God help us. Prog rock is everywhere. Uh, aside from King Crimson, we've got a vast assortment of Eric's historic musical nemeses all doing their thing. Jethro Tull, those very not heavy metal winners of the very first heavy metal Grammy Award, as you may recall. Yikes! Were you aware I of don't, that? I don't remember Oh my that, god, no. they beat Metallica for the first heavy metal Grammy. It's one of the... So Jethro Tull? Jethro Tull. Am I remembering Tull. correctly? They have a flute, right? They are flute-based, yes. <laughs> yes. I would say they are flute-led. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, go go Grammys. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Yes, etc. Uh, this was the decade in which progressive rocker Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells could go on to sell 16 fucking million copies. John, people in the 1970s were weird, right? Uh, based just on that paragraph, yes. Yeah, absolutely. With all those progressive germs in the air, it's no wonder but that most of the first wave heavy metal bands were infected to some degree or another. Black Sabbath, as well we know, went increasingly prog, starting with album number three, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, and were basically just a prog rock band by the end of that decade. Early Judas Priest and early Scorpions were both well-steeped in progressive elements, as well as was everyone's favorite Richie Blackmore slash Ronnie James Dio project, Rainbow. Prog, proggy, prog, prog! That's what the 70s were. And yet... There was one 1970s band more than any other single band who truly brought together a perfect synthesis of progressive rock and early heavy metal. And they were fucking Canadian to boot.
time. So, a little birdie told me that you like Rush. Was this little birdie telling the truth? I mean, what I know of Rush, I enjoy, yeah. Okay. Good bass playing? Great bass playing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it's hard to argue against the bass playing, both technically and just the sound that mm-hmm. he gets. Is oh, really, yeah, it's a good. phenomenal and distinctive sound. Now look, you may recall, I didn't talk about Rush at all in HM101 season number one, right? Yes. Correct. We focused at that time on the heavy metal bands of the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I didn't talk about them for two reasons. Reason number one, actually care that much for Rush. I don't hate right. them. No, I don't uh-huh. I don't hate them. And as we've discussed, this podcast is not actually historical. No. It's just based purely on your taste. That's correct. Mm-hmm. That's Go correct. On. My expert tastes. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, reason number two, however, is that I've never personally considered them to be a metal band. Now, that mm-hmm. seems fair. Yeah. I wouldn't have considered them to be metal either. Great. So you share this belief with me. Yeah. Good. Brother. Mm-hmm. Now, I did give the entire 70s Rushcography a thorough listen prior to writing this episode. Well, I generally didn't have a terrible time bopping along to their music over the course of a few weeks, neither of those aforementioned reasons were too much changed by that experience. Still, I'm the dude that previously talked about Aerosmith extensively on a heavy metal podcast, so I must at least God, I acknowledge that out of my mind. <laughs> I must at least acknowledge that Rush do have quite a few Led Zeppelin derived heavy metalisms in their DNA, and that whether or not one characterizes them as truly a heavy metal band, they most certainly were the crucial bridge between 70s prog rock and the generation of prog metal artists that would spring up in the 1980s and beyond. So thanks, guys. I guess. John, are we thankful for Rush? Sure. I don't know if my thankfulness has any correlation to this podcast or the (laughs) subject we're talking about, but those bass lines are sick. All right. Good. I'll allow it. Uh, So let's give these forefathers of prog metal their due via a listening break. Oh, boy. Yeah. So we can all thoughtfully consider their unique synthesis of early metal and classic 70s prog. Interestingly, while it just might be their most metal album, Rush's 1974 self-titled debut actually isn't really all that progressive. At all. What it is, is a whole lot of Led Zeppelin worship. And frankly, I like it. I like it quite a bit. That said, the debut is the only Rush album not to feature the complete classic lineup, as it included original drummer John Rutsey, who retired from the band shortly after the recording as he was unable to tour due to issues with his diabetes. Diabetes. As such, we're going to zone on into album number two, 1975's Fly By Night, which was the first to feature the classic trio lineup of Getty Lee on bass and vocals, Alex Lifeson on guitars, and the late, great Neil Peart, both banging the skins and penning the lyrics. Could we never say the phrase banging the skins ever again? So you're still not over that? (laughs) I'm pretty attached to it. awful. I'm going to consider your request. I'm going to put it in the file of employee where, suggestions. Where is our HR department? <laughs> when, when you truly need them. <laughs> it's also the first Rush album that really began to include progressive rock elements. The true prog rock classic here is the four-part epic, By Tour and the Snow Dog. But as I'm currently not emotionally prepared for an eight-and-a-half-minute <laughs> listening break, we're, we're instead going to cue up the Ayn Rand-inspired opening track, Anthem. John, are you ready for a heady dose of objectivist philosophy and proto-prog metal? I'm not going to lie. I listened to that whole song and did not make the Ayn Rand connection. Uh, it's actually the name of her first book. I know. I've read it. Oh, me I too. Just, yeah. I fully did not oh. make that connection. Yep. All right. Let's do it. Everybody, pause the show, click the link, and let's get jiggy with Ayn Rand and the boys from Rush. There's a sentence no one has ever said. Okay, then. The table is officially set. We've looked in on prog rock's late 60s emergence and the first set of prog slash metal meldings occurring across the 1970s. John, I think it's time to get down to the serious business. Progressive metal in the 1980s. Yes! Let's go. Yes! What we're supposed to talk about today. We're here! Oh boy. Feeling good? It feels faster than normal. I know, right? Speedy. We should slow down. (laughs) Let's not. (laughs) 
right, so John, I know that you're easily confused. Yep. So I'd like to try to be kind of sort of reasonably organized in how oh we approach God. this potentially sprawling subject matter. Does this sound like a good deal? I love it. Mm-hmm. Swell. First of all, I'm going to just remind everybody that progressive elements abounded in many of the 80s metal bands we've already discussed on this podcast. Some of the most significant bands of the decade. Iron Maiden, Merciful Fate, Metallica, etc. They all had a goodly amount of progressive underpinnings to the music they were making in the 1980s. But we've already spent time with each of those bands, so what I really want to focus on for the remainder of this episode is not bands with progressive metal leanings, but rather those bands that could truly be considered to be among the most significant foundational 1980s artists in the nascent prog metal subgenre. The most important of these bands, arguably, are the proverbial Big three of American progressive metal. John, it's quiz time. Do you know what three bands comprise the big three of American progressive metal? Well, I know we're about to talk about Queensryche. Good. You made me listen to Dream Theater. There you go. Number two. And I can't remember what the third band was. Aww. Nobody can. Nobody can. All that's, right. the, that's the problem with that band. Fate's warning. Sure. Fate's warning. They are oh, the that's li- right. That's the one we spent so much time talking about. <laughs> they are the littlest of the, the big three, without, without a doubt. Queensryche, Fate's Warning, and Dream Theater. John, I have a fun autobiographical fact about these three bands. You want I to... love getting to expose more of your personal life ah, on this podcast. Excellent. That's excellent. what the people come for. That is. They're that trying is. to get a complete picture of Eric the man. <laughs> more of an editorial opinion than an autobiographical fact, no, but less interested now. one of these bands I adore. Mm-hmm. One of them I think is pretty okay. Mm-hmm. One of them I actually genuinely detest with the fiery heat of a thousand suns. Fun! Yeah, yeah, it is fun. It is fun. Uh, more on those important bands shortly. Before we get to the big three, which will culminate with a discussion of not just the band among them who I adore, but also with us taking a close look at what I think is arguably the single best heavy metal album of the entire 1980s. We're going to first switch into our beloved vignette mode and discuss a few other wildly significant progressive metal mavericks who, for various reasons, are not part of the aforementioned big three. John, you ready to make some auditory vignette magic? Let's do it. All right. Take me away from this mundane existence. The year was 1979. Disco ruled the airway. Meanwhile, in sunny Tarpon Springs, Florida, the brothers Oliva, singer John and guitarist Chris, were busily assembling a musical venture called Avatar. By 1982, this project was renamed Sabotage, a combination of the words Avatar and Savage. Sabotage were soon to become one of the principal movers and shakers in both the American progressive and early power metal scenes. While the first three Sabotage albums featured a fairly traditional heavy metal idiom, in 1987 they released their first album under the direction of producer Paul O'Neill, In the Hall of the Mountain King. With the help of O'Neill, the band began to develop an increasingly lush progressive sound, incorporating particularly elements borrowed from classical music and musical theater. These elements would increase still further on their final album of that decade, 1989's intensely theatrical Gutter Ballet. And beyond, 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 beyond. John! Please allow me to add two further notes of interest about Sabotage. One tragic and one which I might characterize as a fun fact. First, the tragedy. Founding member and guitarist Chris Oliva died on October 17, 1993, when his car was struck head-on by a drunk driver. Very sad. Now, for the fun fact. Just a few short years later, in 1996, producer Paul O'Neill brought together Sabotage members John Oliva and Al Petrelli, along with keyboardist Robert Kinkle, in the interest of developing a wacky little Christmas project by the name of the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. John, you're a festive dude. I assume you're familiar with this group? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a very sabotage Christmas. Fun fact. Huh. Yeah. You like them? Yeah. You like their character I mean, like, bells? I like Mannheim Steamroller a little bit more, but uh, they're both good. Okay. Both okay. good. 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 See? You didn't know you'd feel this kinship with the band. I had no idea. Uh-huh. That's what In we're here for. In case it gets cut elsewhere, sabotage is a fucking terrible name. <laughs> 
For the record? For the record. That's on the record. It's on the record. All right, that's fair. I am on the record going to concur with that assessment. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, for my first vignette, lovely listeners, allow me to take you to an exotic land to the north. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Quebec, Canada, home of one of the wackiest ensembles in the entire history of heavy metal, the wonderfully weird Voivod. The classic lineup of this utterly unique band consisted of vocalist Dennis Snake Ballanger, guitarist Dennis Piggy D'Amour, bassist Jean-Yves Blackie Thoreau, and drummer slash graphic artist Michel Boway Langevin, who designs Voivod's album covers and who came up with much of the sci-fi mythology that underpins the band's work. John, idiosyncratic progressive sci-fi metal made by French Canadians. How much fun is that? Do they sing in French? No. Nah, I don't care. Oh. In brief, Voivod began recorded life as a not progressive, but particularly rugged, sloppy thrash band on their 1984 debut, War and Pain. Each successive release, Roar from 1986, and especially Killing Technology from 1987 and Dimension Hatros from 1988, incorporated ever more idiosyncratic progressive elements, always alongside, rather uniquely, gnarly, grimy, hardcore, punkish underpinnings. And, of course, science fiction weirdness. Voivod were, and still are, a deeply strange band. With their seminal release, 1989's Nothing Face, an album, incidentally, which borrows more than just a bit of material from Igor Stravinsky's iconic 1913 composition, The Rite of Spring, Voivod were truly and permanently ensconced in an eccentric progressive metal niche all their own. Freakin' Voivod, John. Freakin' Voivod. Huh. Yeah. I'll see your French-Canadian Voivod, Eric, and raise you a bunch of tremendously virtuosic Texans who, beginning in 1982, went by the name Watchtower. Watchtower! Casual metal fans of a certain age might primarily be familiar with their first singer, Jason McMaster, who left the band after the release of their 1985 debut, Energetic Disassembly, and joined future late-period glam metal stalwarts Dangerous Toys. I love Dangerous Toys. Great band. Anywho, aside from McMaster, Watchtower were known for a particularly complex progressive strain of thrash metal as heard on their two classic 80s releases, the aforementioned Energetic Disassembly and 1989's Control and Resistance, which included new vocalist Alan Tecchio, and would be the band's last before disassembling, at least temporarily, in 1993. Watchtower were one of those bands that were never particularly well-known or commercially successful themselves, but whose influence on the succeeding generation of progressive metal bands was quite outsized, and hence is certainly worthy of note. Okay, it's almost time for the big three, but last but not least, on this wide-ranging vignette journey through this wild and woolly world of assorted 80s progressive metal mavericks, we're going to hop on the good old Concord supersonic airliner and take us a ride to beautiful Switzerland. Have you been to Switzerland? I have not. I would love to go. I have also not been to Switzerland, but now is our chance. As we take a journey of the mind and explore one of the very most fascinating, uniquely progressive heavy metal bands of all time, we find ourselves specifically in Zurich, where we shall meet the mighty Celtic Frost, one of the very most important heavy metal bands of all time influencing successive generations of black metal, death metal, and symphonic metal bands with their trailblazing, utterly unique brand of music making. Celtic Frost emerged in 1984 out of the ashes of the controversial, experimental, extreme metal band Hellhammer, and were the brainchild of iconic Swiss guitarist-slash-vocalist Tom Gabriel Fisher, aka Tom G. Warrior, and American bassist Martin Eric Ain. Rest in peace. Frankly, this is a band that really deserves an entire episode all to themselves, but a super reductive, vignette-style survey of their 1980s work might go something like this. After dissolving Hellhammer in the midst of a vast and turbulent sea of critical vitriol, Ain and Fisher regrouped in 1984 as Celtic Frost, releasing an excellent debut EP, Morbid Tales, in November of that year. This album has since been repackaged with a second EP, Emperor's Return, as a full-length album. While Morbid Tales was more or less a thrash album with corpse paint and some amount of proto-black metal underpinnings, as well as a few total curveballs like the spectacular avant-garde soundpiece Dance Macabre, its follow-up, the masterful Two Megatherion, released in October of 1985, contained elements of thrash, doom, death, 
black, and symphonic metal, all wrapped up in one mighty extreme metal package. It also features an iconic cover by the legendary Swiss artist H.R. Geiger. Quick fun fact, Tom G. Warrior actually served as Geiger's personal assistant starting in 2007. Neat! Another interesting fact. Ian actually did not play on Two Megatherion, but he returned shortly after it was recorded and did play on their second full length, the absolutely nutso, delightful 1987 release Into the Pandemonium, which added elements of opera, electronica, and new wave into the already elaborate tapestry of Celtic Frost goodness. Now, John, you can't tell me you're not just a touch curious about what a mix of death metal, opera, and new wave might sound like. I genuinely have so many questions, but this feels like not the time. I know. We really do need to do a Celtic Frost episode because they are fucking awesome and really fascinating. And there really is like operatic vocalizations, symphonic orchestrations, very, very heavy, doomy black metal. Like it's crazy. Crazy band. God, I love Celtic Frost so much. One of these days, a Celtic Frost deep dive episode will simply have to happen. Meanwhile, Into the Pandemonium marked the end of the first high period of the band up until their extraordinary second act in the 21st century. For reasons no one in the world quite understands, the final Celtic Frost album of the 1980s, Cold Lake from 1988, was an attempt by Warrior to transition the band into a more populist glam metal sound and image. It was one of the truly legendary clusterfucks of heavy metal history and just another wacky chapter in the endlessly fascinating history of Tom G. Warrior and Celtic Frost. Unfortunately, we're not here today to talk in great depth about Celtic Frost, John. So stop trying to distract me. That said, I do want to say that Celtic Frost, to me, represent the very best of what progressive music can and should be. That is to say, their musical aesthetic bears no oral resemblance to the 70s progressive rock paradigm, and their music was simply always about pushing and transcending boundaries in the most interesting, uncompromising way possible. Such a fucking great band. Yes, queen. Okay, now that I've gotten to celebrate the glorious goodness of Celtic Frost, shall we move into the beating heart of this episode, an exploration of the big three bands of American progressive heavy metal, Fate's Warning, Dream Theater, and Queensryche? I suppose now is a good time to start talking about the subject of today's episode. Why not? Enter the big three. So I'm going to tackle this in a somewhat idiosyncratic order, which has everything to do with my own feelings about these bands. I hope, John, that you won't think too badly of me for not simply tackling these three groups in a strictly chronological order. Time is is just a construct. Exactly so. So let us then begin in the middle with a band that I kind of sort of sometimes like, but who are the least famous, by far, of the three under discussion. John, we're going to Connecticut. Connecticut. No. Yeah. Okay. Hey, it's not the most metal of states, but indeed, welcome to Connecticut, the, you'll love this, land of steady habits. Is that genuinely their slogan? I think it's their outmoded slogan. It was known that way for its traditional conservatism in colonial times. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Yeah. Anyhow, more importantly, Hartford, Connecticut was the birthplace Mm. in 1982 of progressive metal titans Fate's Warning. Woot! Yay! Rah! John, I actually gave you a couple of Fate's Warning tracks on your playlist for this episode. Mm -hmm. Based on your listening, whatever did you think of this rather unique musical entity from the land of steady habits? It was okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, how how deep are we getting into this? As deep as you want. What what are your feelings? What's, What's in your heart? So the melodies were problematic, right? All right, we both agreed that the the vocal melodies really in both tracks, problematic. Feels like it's worth pointing out you had me listen to two tracks with two different singers. That's important to note, yes. And the first singer sounded like they were pinching their nose the entire time they were singing. John Arch, very nasal, very high. Yeah, not great. I mean, we've heard nasal and high singers before. It's not an uncommon trend in the music you've made me listen to, but this wasn't great. Yeah, his voice is uh, an acquired taste, shall we say. And it just was kind of um, simple. Okay. Like, fundamentally, the construction of the music was not terribly complex, and then they just kind of put a lot of, like, baroque ornaments on it. Okay, so if you take a step back and look at the entire structure, I'd say something that Fate's Warning tend to do is take a lot of simple elements and build them into, like, some pretty unusual song structure. Like, they're not very, like, verse, chorus. They're, okay. they're a little bit different. Some unusual meters floating around there. A lot of that sort of elaborate baroque ornamentation in all the lines. Look, I find Fate's Warning to be pretty fascinating, but honestly, other than their seminal early release, Awaken the Guardian, an album which I really do enjoy, 
I don't especially love their music. I do appreciate the uniquely challenging qualities of much of their work. Wow. The uniquely challenging qualities of much of their work. It's progressive music. That's the point. It's supposed to intellectually challenge you. Boo. <laughs> There's a lot of surface dissonance in their music. Okay. So a lot of irregular meters and exotic song structures. But as we began to discuss, I find both of their singers, first John Arch and later Ray Elder, uh, pretty damn irritating. On your playlist, the first track, Guardian, featured Arch, while the singer on Through Different Eyes was Alder. Now, you thought Alder's voice was a little more conventional, a little, little bit less I mean, than... better by proxy, still not great. Yeah, I don't love Alder. I mean, I guess my main problem with Alder's voice is he sounds like kind of a low-rent Jeff Tate from Queensryche, whereas at least Arch has a really unique voice. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say something that's going to bother you, but like aesthetically speaking, a lot of these singers are kind of in the same vein. There's just sort of an 80s vocal aesthetic for this genre of music, and they all kind of do it. Uh, like a high whiny tenor? There's some amount of that. There's, there's some almost entirely that. There's a little bit of that. I won't argue that there's some conventional vocal it's okay. wisdom. okay. This is how we help to define right. genres. Boundaries and such. Mm -hmm. Basso profundo singing in heavy metal is still a few decades away at this point. I think my main issue with Fate's Warning is not just with the tone of the vocalists, but as you and I already mentioned, it's the vocal melodies. Yeah, it's a bit of a mess. I just think that the way that principal songwriter Jim Matthews writes riffs, the very sort of elaborate and wandery riffs. So it feels like he just threw a bunch of bouncy balls at a keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're they're pretty they're pretty asymmetrical. They're weird. They're just weird and the vocal melodies have trouble locking into anything too coherent. Sure, enjoyable, yeah. <laughs> memorable. Well, that's one of the things that I like about Awaken the Guardian is that it, that's a really a quality of all of early Fate's Warning, these like wandery, strange melodies. I think Awaken the Guardian brings some hooks to that. I think it has some actual sort of tasty and memorable lines within an overwhelmingly complex, weird tapestry of a whole bunch of simple stuff. Again, I don't think their music is tremendously virtuosic at that period, but it's complex in its own unusual way. Okay. It's an interesting band. Fate's Warning is definitely an interesting band. They're not totally my cup of tea, but they don't quite sound like anyone else, and uh, one does have to respect their rugged, weird individuality. For the record, one doesn't. John doesn't, but really everyone else should. So let's us take a look at the 80s founding and continual evolution of who I can only imagine are probably Connecticut's favorite heavy metal sons. I think. I mean, the only rivals I can think of off the top of my head are Hatebreed, maybe the excellent contemporary melodic death metal group Fires in the Distance. John, who do you think the good people from the land of steady habits are more likely to get behind? The progressive metal of Fate's Warning, the proto-metalcore of rough-and-tumble Hatebreed featuring lead singer and metal podcaster extraordinaire Jamie Josta, or a little-known but utterly fantastic 21st century melodic death metal group. What do you think? I think the people of the state of that slogan are unlikely to listen to any of this music. Well, maybe it's possibly also worth noting that the Shags were from Connecticut. Oh. Yeah, but I fear this is in danger of becoming a digression of truly epic proportions. What? No? Yeah. Fate's Warning, John. Why don't you do me a solid and tell us just a little tiny bit about their early history? That'd be ever so nice. Progressive metal maestro's Fate's Warning first came together in Hartford, Connecticut in 1982 with an original lineup including vocalist John Arch, guitarists Jim Mathios and Victor Arduini, and a rhythm section comprised of bassist Joe DiBiase and drummer Steve Zimmerman. This was the lineup which recorded their less-than-stellar debut, Night on Brocken. 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 Brocken, if Brocken. we do it in German. They're from Connecticut, so yeah. who knows. Which was released in September of 1984. Now, John, before we continue, I'd love it if you could take a quick glance at the mind-numbingly shitty cover art from oh the original release oh of Night on Brocken. Let's go. <laughs> Let us know what you think. <laughs> 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 Did a child draw this? I mean, look, I, I have no visual artist ability, so I shouldn't be saying anything, but this genuinely looks like something that I would kind of expect like a middle school boy to come up with in an art class. Okay, let me dive in. There's a lot going on here. First of all, I think worth noting, it's a sunny day. Yeah, it's nice. It's rare that you see a sunny day in, in the genre of this Yeah, it looks type like a pleasant, pleasant sort of like a early autumn kind of thing. Yeah. The leaves have Is that an yet. elf? 
Are his ears pointy? I they they look pointy. I don't think he's supposed to be an elf, but his ears are. I mean, a strong like a pilgrim, strong maybe. fantasy vibes. Well, it's kind of a, a pilgrim hat meets wizard's hat with a Dracula cape. Yep, with a Dracula cape, and then I'm gonna assume that's a crooked sword. Like it's just kind of. Oh, I was thinking it was a stick that on fire. Oh, is it a stick? Oh, that's yeah, connected to it. I think it. they're gonna like burn away. Oh, he's holding a torch. Maybe. Okay, okay. There's a naked lady in a puddle. Like, no, no, she's wearing a dress. She's that's a dress? dress. <laughs> oh, I thought she was lying in a puddle. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's not a great draw. In John's defense, <laughs> some of the detailing is problematic. I think she's lying in a puddle. I don't think you can tell me she's not lying in a puddle based on the quality of the art. <laughs> with with a cat on her face. <laughs> well, yeah. So that I was, I was, I wanted to get to that. Are there four cats? There's or? a lot of cats. I, I genuinely can't tell what some of these things are. Two of them definitely... Well, a, that's a cat. That's a cat. Is that a cat back there? I, I, I sort of assume so. Foreground cat, background, animal of questionable origin. Uh-huh. We should mention there's a lady. Yeah. Just she, like arms out towards the mountains in the background. kind of witchy, maybe? I mean, that's a bold assumption. She's definitely wearing like a sexy outfit. She's got like high red boots and tight pants. Yeah, hard, hard to call that witchy. Just <laughs> sort of generic lady shape. <laughs> Next to her, I don't know. Is Werewolf? that a minotaur? What yeah, is yeah. what is that? It, it, it appears to be wearing pants. Whatever. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. And it's either really short or it's supposed to be I, further in the I background. I genuinely below the minotaur thing cannot tell what that is supposed to be. I think there's maybe a monkey. I truly cannot discern a monkey in like a takeout package forms <laughs> from to... what's going on. <laughs> All right. So, Holy shit. <laughs> so. Maybe we should have a podcast where you just look at shitty album covers. <laughs> <laughs> there are actually two other covers from different releases of the same album, but neither of those are particularly spectacular either. That said, I think this bad boy really is the special one. I'll just say for the record that I think Night Unbroken is a legitimately awful album. But fortunately, things do get better after this one. Anyhow, please continue. While their debut didn't make much of a dent on the critics or on most heavy metal fans, or on Eric, me, album number two, The Spectre Within, released in October of 1985 by the same lineup with the addition of keyboardist Jim Arch, definitely showed a band further developing their own uniquely progressive musical identity. While Eric still thinks the songwriting on The Spectre Within is fundamentally still pretty poopy, he does admit that the doomy complexity of the music is considerably more interesting than what had come before. Thank you for having me read your opinion. I thought you'd like that. You know, I'm trying to give you more work. Sure, sure, (laughs) sure, sure. I'm going to be real here. I just don't like either of these first two albums. The Spectre Within is definitely better than its predecessor, but I would suggest any Fate's Warning novice would be best served to ignore these first two releases and to begin their explorations with album number three. John! Third time's a charm. Things are starting to get good. Tell us about Fate's Warning's third album, Cibu Play. According to author and Fate's Warning superfan Jeff Wagner, After the release of Awaken the Guardian on June 1st, 1986, The Spectre Within seemed like a mere warm-up. The lineup included a new keyboardist, Jim Archambault, a new guitarist, Frank Eresti. Awaken the Guardian expanded considerably further upon the complex musical structures of The Spectre Within, but also layered in hooky, memorable songwriting. While many Fates Warning fans will point to their more conventionally proggy, polished early 90s work with singer Ray Alder as their artistic peak, I don't think this band ever sounded better or more interesting than they did on Awaken the Guardian. John Arch is most definitely an acquired taste as a vocalist, but I really do think everything finally came together for the band on this album. So let's take a listen, shall we? There are a lot of wacky, great tunes on this album, but I think the quasi-title track, Guardian, is a great illustration of the best of what the band was doing at this time. Beloved listeners, pause the podcast, click on the link in the show notes, and John and I will see you on the other side. Now, John. Usually, I don't remotely care what you actually think about things, but I have to admit it. I'm actually genuinely curious to know. Whatever did you make of Fate's Warning, and particularly this lovely tune, Guardian? I mean, we kind of already said it. Mm-hmm. 
that's just sort of there. It's not bad. So this music did not move you in any substantial way no. beyond the problematic singing. Yeah, the singing wasn't great. Okay. Yeah. It's okay. I, I mean, I, when I say I'm genuinely curious, I really didn't know what you'd make of Fate's Warning. I don't, uh, they're the weird, they're just a weird band. They're a weird band. They don't sound. I mean, when you talk about them mm-hmm. in writing here, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you make them sound a lot more interesting than they were. <laughs> like, <laughs> listening to the music, as I have twice now, because mm-hmm. I listened to it a while ago, because we had to delay this recording and then refreshed before we started. Mm-hmm. Uh, both times... None of the complexities that you alluded to really come across. It just kind of doesn't make an impact. All right. I think they're an interesting band. Okay. Who make interesting music. Okay. Look, as is probably clear to anyone listening by now, I, I do have some mixed emotions about the band. That said, I really, really do love Awaken the Guardian, which I think is Fate's warning at their jagged, idiosyncratic best. We need to be moving on, but just a quick wrap on 80s Fate's warning before we do so. In 1987, singer John Arch was fired and was replaced by the somewhat more traditional, though still fairly irritating, Ray Alder. My main issue with Alder is that while Arch was wholly unique, Alder sounds a lot like a poor man's Jeff Tate. More on Mr. Tate very soon. Regardless, the change seems to have paid off, and Fate's Warning's next album, No Exit, from 1988, was their biggest hit to date, hitting a impressive number 111 on the Billboard charts. Woo! This was followed by yet another change, as drummer Steve Zimmerman left the band following the No Exit tour and was replaced by virtuoso drummer Mark Zonder. Their final album of the decade, Perfect Symmetry, from 1989, was a lot less metal and a lot more prog. Sigh. Still, Fate's Warning had plenty of gas left in the tank, and lots of interesting music making was on the horizon. However, that is a story for another time. For another time. For another time. For another time. Hey, John. Hey. You ready for something strange? I suppose. We're about to be in some fairly unfamiliar territory here on Heavy Metal 101. Okay. We're going to talk about a band I truly, deeply detest. Let's go. (laughs) So it sounds like you do not, like me, feel kind of yucky in the tummy. No, I love talking shit, Eric. (laughs) So here's the thing. Happy to be negative. (laughs) We're definitely in John territory now. (laughs) This is my moment. God help us all. (laughs) Okay. For all you Dream Theater fans out there, fuck off. (laughs) God damn it. We're being sensitive. This is a sensitive moment. (laughs) Those Dream Theater fans include my beloved older brother. Look, I want you all to know that I love and respect you and your musical taste. John, do you love and respect them? I don't love anyone I don't know. So I'm not saying I hate you, but I don't know you. All right, all right, that's fair. That seems reasonable. I am wholly of the belief that taste is a fundamentally subjective thing. What else could it be? Some people think that taste has an element of objectivity, a learned component. You know, high taste, low taste. I think that's just people being shitty. Oh, good. I agree. Look, I also have no interest in spending a chunk of episode time bashing a band I dislike. Boo. Yeah. So I intend to be as genteel as possible about this whole dream theater thing. Regardless of mine own feelings, they are universally understood as a part of the proverbial big three of American progressive metal. And so we are going to talk about them. That said, we're justifiably going to do so very briefly. You see, the underlying premise of this episode is prog metal in the 1980s, and only one of the band's 15 studio albums was released during that decade. So, John, are you okay if we make this segment mercifully brief? Let's do it. Okay. I thought as much. I'm going to let you steer the ship just one more time. Mike, could you tell us about the formative history and debut album of the artists formerly known as Majesty? As Majesty. As Majesty. I sure can, Eric. You just rest up for the grand finale and do be sure to do your deep breathing exercises so that you don't get too stressed out by all of this. Anxiety isn't good for the vocal cords. Thanks, buddy. You're doing God's work. Take it away. Dream Theater was the brainchild of three Berklee College of Music dropouts. Guitarist John Petrucci, bassist John Young, and drummer Mike Portnoy who first began playing together in Boston, Massachusetts in 1985 under the name Majesty. In 1986, they changed their name to Dream Theater and replaced their first singer, Chris Collins, who went on to a great broadcasting career, (laughs) with Charlie Dominici. Chris Collinsworth? Yeah, but, you know, no one cares. Maybe he shortened his name when he emigrated from uh, Cincinnati. (laughs) (laughs) Who would stay with the band through the release of their debut album. Side note, 
As of this recording, Dominici only just recently passed away, so rest in peace. Also, casual fans might not be so familiar with his Getty Lee-esque vocals, as Dream Theater didn't break big until their 1992 sophomore release, Images and Words, which featured Dominici's replacement, Kevin James Labrie, who continues to sing with the band to this very day. Okay, please do continue. You're doing a really great job. Dream Theater released their debut album, When Dream and Day Unite, on March 6th, 1989. Dream Theater's early sound was heavily influenced by both Rush and Queensryche, but also showcased the hooky, accessible songwriting that would help the band eventually sell over 12 million albums worldwide. That said, Dream Theater hadn't quite found their artistic voice on the debut, which was the band's only album not to chart on the Billboard Top 200. Dream Theater. Okay, I mean look. Dream Theater are huge and are an absolute cornerstone of the big three of American progressive metal and of progressive metal more generally. But most of that reputation is staked on albums that came out in the 90s and beyond. I did include one Dream Theater track on your playlist, the instrumental Yitze Jam, which, for the word game enthusiasts out there, is an anagram of majesty. I chose this one for a few reasons. One, it has by far the best principal riff of any of the tracks on the album. Two, I don't think that Dominici's singing, which is perfectly fine by the way, really paints an accurate picture of Dream Theater as most people know them, and three. It is the tune from the debut that the band still most frequently revisits live, and as such is probably the most significant song on the debut. So what did you think of that track? I mean, honestly, that one was pretty good. Yeah, it's a good one. I like it too. I, I talk shit about Dream Theater. I put it on because it's good. Yeah. Yeah. No uh, singing. Yeah, no singing. That's huge. That's huge with this band. I don't know. So I've never heard any of their singing. No idea. Won't judge it. Because that was the only Dream Theater track you made me listen to, right? You're welcome. Yeah, yeah. so. Uh, <laughs> good. Who knows? It's a good but, track. But that one was pretty cool. Like it. There was some good shit going on. I'm not a fan of this band. I've already admitted that. But I, I don't have any real problem with the debut album. Honestly, I don't love Dominici's voice, but I actually do prefer it to La Brise, which is probably my least favorite thing about the band. So go instrumental track. And they, they play like absolute motherfuckers, right? Yeah, it was good. Any other Dream Theater thoughts before our big finish? Nope. You think anyone's going to notice that our Dream Theater discourse was actually quite a bit more of a vignette than our Celtic Frost chat? Uh, yes. <laughs> I do think people will notice that that was the shortest amount of time we've ever spent on any singular band in the history of this podcast. <laughs> Funny, I didn't notice. <laughs> Fuck the world! It's my show! That's what the whole show could be like, just for the record. We could write the whole show with about that much information. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think we've said more or less enough about this band for now. We're going to move on to our incredibly exciting big finish. John, are you ready to talk about goddamn motherfucking Queensryche? Sure. Yes! Now this is very exciting. Not only do we get to talk about a truly fantastic band, but we're also going to discuss my pick for the single greatest heavy metal album of the entire 1980s. <laughs> Can you even stand all of this excitement? I'm barely holding it together. So much excitement. Now, did you know anything about the Cool Cats in Queensryche or the music they've made before all of this HM 101 nanny? I knew they existed, and okay. I had been told to listen to them. I had not done so. All right, all right. I'm glad we could remedy that. Now, obviously, you got to hear a few of their tracks on your playlist. Skipping anything from their self-titled EP, which is wonderful, but definitely a musical outlier within their oeuvre, I gave you one track from each 80s full-length album, Take Hold of the Flame from The Warning, Walk in the Shadows from Rage for Order, and I Don't Believe in Love from the mighty Operation Mindcrime. What did you think of this fun-filled musical sampler pack? Yeah, these were fine. Look, I, these were not bad. Mm -hmm. Nothing really stood out in a good or bad way. To I me. guess I guess a fair argument could be made that Queensrÿche are more of an album band than a song band. So well, perhaps, that's worth noting. If I had my druthers, I would have just had you listen to all of Operation Mindcrime. That okay. probably that probably would have been the best thing for you to do. Mm -hmm. But since we also had other stuff to cover, I thought you might revolt if I gave you an entire album and a playlist. It's also not a short album. No, it's not. So I, I limited myself just to these three songs. Okay. Yeah. I'm a good friend, John. Okay. Yeah. All righty then. Obviously, the single most important thing one needs to know about Queensryche is that they are imbued with two of our most favoritest heavy metal tropes a misspelled name, and an unnecessary, and in this case, completely unpronounced umlaut. Yes, sir, that's Queensryche. One word, Q-U-E-E-N-S-R-Y, with an umlaut, C-H-E. 
It's a thing of beauty, no? Sure. Where are they from? <laughs> They're from Seattle. Huh. Yeah, home of the uh, unnecessary umlauts. Yeah. Yeah. In fairness to the band who have spent their entire career having to explain to people just how to pronounce their fucking band name, the reason for the alternate spelling of Reich was to avoid association with Nazis. I think we here at HM101 are entirely in favor of not associating with Nazis, right? We certainly are, but it does beg the question. Mm-hmm. Why even get close? It's fair. You are making up a word uh-huh. for a band that you have made up. So you're saying... They should have just had a completely different band name. I feel like we wouldn't be talking about them less mm-hmm. if the music was the same mm-hmm. and the name didn't get close to Nazis. You're right. But you, you can agree with the sentiment, fuck the Nazis. 100%. Fuck them. We here at Heavy Metal 101 firmly believe that if you're a Nazi, you can go fuck yourself. Fuck them right in the ear. Anyway, Queensryche was one of those slowly gestating bands which evolved out of a whole bunch of other bands with various lineups starting as early as 1978 in Washington State. However, the band officially became Queensryche in 1982 in the Seattle suburb of Bellevue, Washington. All of the instrumental pieces of the classic lineup were in place by this time, dueling guitarists Michael Wilton and Chris DeGarmo, bassist Eddie Jackson, and drummer Scott Rockenfield. For whatever reason, this rogues gallery of badass shredders had difficulty locking in a frontman, so when they pulled together sufficient funds to record a demo, they recruited the singer of another local band, Myth, to record with them. This was a fellow named Jeff Tate. That's Geoff, John, in case you were wondering. Best way to spell Jeff. Mm. He of the massively powerful four-octave vocal range and arguably the equally powerful four-octave ego. John, Jeff Tate is an incredible gosh-dang singer, don't you think? Sure. Yeah, certainly one of the very best. Quite possibly the very best. Anywho, the long and short of things is that Queensryche shopped a four-track demo around to various labels only to suffer rejection after rejection, which, coincidentally, is the name of John's latest sex tape. But um, ting <laughs> Eventually, their management had enough of dicking around with labels and decided to release the demo themselves as a self-titled debut EP in 1982. The EP fucking shreds, sounding like Iron Maiden on steroids. And, despite this being the same collection of songs which got Queensryche repeatedly shown the door at various labels, now, as a surprisingly successful and universally lauded independent release, it secured the band a record deal with EMI, which also led to Jeff Tate, at last, ditching Myth and officially joining the band. Meanwhile, John, I think I've cracked the code. We just need to have our management team release our podcast on their indie label and to have it then garner huge amounts of praise and sales. After that, the major podcast distribution companies will come to us, begging on their hands and knees. Success is within our grasp. What do you think? Boy, a lot of that was delusional. <laughs> like, so much of that was just pure fiction. <laughs> the name of my uh, most recent sex tape. But um. <laughs> EMI re-released the EP on August 12, 1983, and it managed to reach number 81 on the Billboard charts. Not too shabby. The band also got themselves on some pretty serious tours at this early juncture, opening for Quiet Riot, Twisted Sister, and Dio at various points, and exposing them to a vast audience of early 80s metalheads before they even had released a full-length debut. Speaking of full-length debuts, this was to be the very next thing on the band's agenda. On September 7th, 1984, Queensryche released The Warning, an album that splits the difference between the traditional metal found on the EP and a considerably more quirky, progressive metal sound. Of note is the fact that the album was produced by James Guthrie, who is known primarily for his work with a little progressive rock band called Pink Floyd. I like The Warning, which has a scruffy charm about it. There are also elements of a quirky sci-fi kookiness to be found, as on Side One Closer, NM-156. Now, John, using your best robot voice, why don't you give us a sample of the lyrics from that track? Uniform printout reads... That's not a robot voice! (laughs) Damn you! Uniform printout reads end of line. Protect code intact leaves little time. Erratic surveys, free thinking not allowed. My hands shake, my push buttons silence the outside crowd. One world government has outlawed war among nations. Now social control requires population termination. Have we come too far to turn around? Does emotion hold the key? Is logic just a synonym for this savagery disguised in forgotten lost memory? Now, that is just the sort of shit that 13-year-old metalhead Eric didn't 
quite know what to make of. 47-year-old Eric is generally less befuddled by nerdy experimental sci-fi metal. I still don't entirely love The Warning. Frankly, it's the only album among the band's first five releases that I don't absolutely love. But that's okay. The Warning managed to hit number 61 on the Billboard charts and eventually was certified gold. It also secured them an opening tour slot with Kiss, so that's pretty awesome. I'll also note that Take Hold of the Flame, which was on your playlist, is a stone classic, and that the epic closing track, the 10-minute long Roads to Madness, totally gives me the chills. Great stuff. But even better things were on the horizon. John, would you be a darling and tell us about Queensryche's second full-length, Rage for Order? I'd be delighted, Eric. You're just making shit up. You're I just, know. You're just having me lie. I am. You look delighted. You have the, you're glowing. Acting. <laughs> Rage for Order, released on June 27, 1986, was part of a management-driven attempt to rebrand the band and to situate Queensryche within the increasingly popular world of glam metal. Oh, yes! The look of the band was considerably polished up, and on the Rage for Order tour, Queensryche opened for a collection of highly accessible groups including Rat, ACDC, and Bon Jovi. The first single, chosen from Rage for Order, was Appropriately Wacky, a cover of Canadian new wave singer Lisa Dalbello's anthemic creepy Gonna Get Close to You. That is a great fucking song. So great! Sorry, go on. Despite the best efforts of the band's management, they took a modest commercial step backwards, with Rage for Order peaking at number 85 on the Billboard charts. Though, like its predecessor, it was eventually certified gold. Eric, do you have any questions or comments about Rage for Order before we move things along to our grand finale? Yeah, I like it when you ask me things. It's nice. It's very weird because it is fully <laughs> scripted. It feels very disingenuous. It feels so organic in your delivery. It's all about the delivery. Look, it's a very cool album, but we've got bigger fish to fry. It's big finish time. Let's go. It's time to discuss my pick for the best metal album of the decade. Operation Mindcrime. Mind First off, Operation Mindcrime is a concept album. John, Ooh. we talked a wee bit about what a concept album is here on HM101, but could you remind our delightful listeners what this term means? No. No? No. All right. It's an album that tells a story. It's, it's an, an album al that tells a story. There, the songs are There's linked a together. Line. Yes. It's got a construction. It doesn't necessarily have to be a narrative story. It can more be like conceptually, thematically tied together. Sure. But in this particular case, we've got a you know a rock opera. We've got a story. Indeed, this collection of 15 tracks, which is comprised of 10 relatively traditional songs and five tracks that are either ambient instrumentals or which serve to push the narrative forward via snippets of sound and voice acting, it tells a story. Rather a good, thoughtful, and very unusual for the genre, reasonably clear story at that. It's a story that would benefit from a wee bit of a John and Eric voice acting extravaganza. Woo! But before we get to that, let's talk album specs and take a listening break so that John and I can gargle some warm salt water and do our usual Baroque assortment of pre-voice acting vocal warm-ups. Perhaps unsurprisingly, this epic masterpiece did take some time to put together, and the pre-production through recording process took nearly two years. Mm. It was, however, eventually released on May 3rd, 1988, a day after which all the other bands threw up their hands and said, well, fuck balls. We can't do better than that, so I suppose we'll just have to spend the rest of this decade muddling through as best we can. Operation Mindcrime was recorded by the same classic band lineup that had been around since the EP, but also included a five-person cast, highlighted by the wonderful Pamela Moore as Sister Mary, and a choir credited as the Moronic Monks of Morin Heights. Although the actual orchestra isn't credited, the late great Michael Kamen is credited with orchestral arrangements and choir and cello conducting. The album was produced by Peter Collins, best known for producing mid-80s Rush material like Power Windows and Hold Your Fire. Operation Mindcrime would, at last, be Queensryche's true breakthrough album, hitting number 50 on the Billboard charts and eventually achieving platinum status. Its two singles, Eyes of a Stranger and I Don't Believe in Love, also became the band's first singles to chart. In point of fact, it was the MTV video for Eyes of a Stranger that first introduced a youthful, virile Eric to this fine, fine band. Alright, let's us take a listening break and revel in how fucking great this music really is. There are so many great songs on this album. In fact, they are literally 
all great. So if you have the time and haven't already done so, please do listen to the whole damn thing. Otherwise, if you pause the podcast and click on the link, you'll get to enjoy one of the many epic bangers from this release, the iconic I Don't Believe in Love. John, get ready to be hypnotized by Queensryche. Your life is about to become deeply and irrevocably broken by heavy, heavy, metal, 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 metal. a motherfucker of a song, no? Yeah. Great. Yeah. You liked it. I did. Okay, good. Good. My God, this album really does just blow me away. I sometimes think that the only truly great music is Bach's Cantata Number 140 and Queensryche's Operation Mindcrime. What do you think? Okay. Good. We're in agreement? No, but okay. You just rolling with it? Yep. All right. Anyhow, it's time. John, let's you and I collaborate and tell the story of Operation Mindcrime, shall we? Okay. Join us, listeners, as we podcast progressively our way through perhaps the greatest heavy metal narrative of all time. Our tale begins at the ending. A nearly catatonic Nicky lies in a hospital bed, searching his fractured memory for the details of how he had gotten here. I remember now. I remember how it started. I can't remember yesterday. I just remember doing what they told me. We now find ourselves transported to the recent past, observing Nikki as a fiery political radical with a passionate yearning to change a world gone mad with capitalism and selfishness. It is here that we meet the mysterious Dr. X, who pulls Nikki into his world of revolution and heroin addiction, eventually shaping him into a cold-blooded assassin via brainwashing. The code word is... Nikki is eventually introduced to a former prostitute now named Sister Mary, with whom he develops first a friendship and eventually falls in love. But there is no room for love in this revolution, and Dr. X orders Nikki to kill Mary. Kill her! That's all you have to do. Kill Mary? She's a risk. And get the priest as well. Well, 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 well. As far gone as Nikki is, this proves to be a bridge too far. Nikki does honestly attempt to fulfill his orders, but when he finds he simply cannot kill Mary, he returns to Dr. X. I've had enough and I want out! You can't walk away now. <laughs> the muddled heroin addicted Nikki does indeed walk away, but when he returns to Mary, he finds her dead. Was it actually Nikki who killed her? He, he does not know. It's all too much a broken heart, a broken mind, a broken spirit, a broken man. Eventually, the police arrest Nikki on suspicion of multiple murders, and it is here. Once more, then we find ourselves next to a nearly catatonic Nicky. We see him lying in his hospital, struggling to remember. Our story fades to black as Nicky at last rises, looks at himself in the mirror, and is unable to recognize the eyes that look back at him. The eyes of a stranger. Chills, John! I have chills! Now, you'll be interested to know that starting in 2009, there was much talk of a version of Operation Mindcrime heading to Broadway, as the performer Adam Pascal, who was Tony-nominated for his performance in Rent, expressed an interest in working with the band to adapt the album into a stage show. Sadly, the last time this news appears to have meaningfully blipped was back in 2012, so I'm rather dubious at this point. But what I most truly mourn is the extraordinary Heavy Metal 101 meets Musical Minutes with John and John crossover that could have been. Could you even imagine? Oh, it would have been glorious. Uh, we would have had to go. Ah, uh, we would have had to go. Alrighty then. Prog Metal out. We talked about a thing about which I have rather sharply mixed emotions, and yet, I think we're all coming out the other end better and stronger than when we went in. How you feeling, Johnny M? We have talked about a lot of stuff. Mm. I don't know that we said much, but we have talked a lot. A today. lot of talking. Many words. Many words. That's what we do here. Great. 
I'm sure there will be questions, comments, and maybe even a complaint or two about the short shrift we gave to Dream Theater. Want to tell the people what they can do with their complaints? You can send your complaints, or I guess if you have anything positive to say. And definitely if you have questions. We love questions. Love them. Please send us questions via email at heavymetal101podcast at gmail.com. Again, you can leave us a voicemail at our Spotify for Podcasters page. You can just click on the episode notes for the endlessly long URL. You can also find us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, or even Threads, despite that place being an unholy barren wasteland at this point. All of those links are also available in the episode notes. And, as always, we ask, eyes respectfully cast downwards and hat in hands, that if you like this show, consider letting the people of the world know. Write a review. Click on that fifth star. Any and all help you can offer in getting the word out is always and forever appreciated. John, we're done! Shall we now turn down the lights, close our eyes, and bliss out to Operation Mindcrime played on a loop for the next ten hours? Mm, no, I'm gonna go get tacos. You're such a fucker. Fucker.